So uh, are you ready to proceed? Let's proceed. Uh, la- the la- this, for those of you who don't know, we've been doing a, uh, a little walk through a character sketch, if you will, of King David and trying to uh, give a juxtaposition between he and Saul. And I have heard many of you have sent me emails, I've gotten texts, you've stopped me in the hall, you've said, look, this has had a profound effect on my life. Trying to understand the Saul that is in me and then trying to move towards uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit in me, and I can see that struggle, that battle between the two, and it's really challenging. But it's good to know, it's good to understand that this kind of template exists to help me walk through this life. Finally, after last week, we saw that the battle is over in some ways for David, on the exterior, and I think we'll see a great parallel in our lives as well. A lot of times when we look out, we say, oh, finally I've gotten through this season of my life. Maybe for you it was a divorce. Maybe it was, maybe it was for you the loss of a child, maybe, or a spouse, or, or something. And, you know, uh, there's been a long season of real darkness, a valley, if you will. And then you emerge into the light and how sweet it is in the light, but as we're going to see... Over the next few weeks, the light can be sweet, but you know what? Relative to the darkness, the darkness can also be, in a very paradoxical way, sweet as well, because Jesus is with us in the valleys. If you'll remember, we looked back at some scripture a number of weeks back and said, God got really angry because they said God, uh, some of the enemies of Israel said, you know, your God is a God of the mountains, and not a God of the valleys. And God got very angry with those people. Why? He says, no, I'm a God of the valleys and the mountains. God is in the middle of the valleys, and sometimes God can become more ever-present to you in the valley than he can on the mountaintop. I know that sounds strange. We always look for the times of our life that are perfect, that nothing really is, everything's in order. Our finances are in order, relationships in order, our health is in order. And when we get all those, and rarely are those all put together, we feel like then I'll, re, I'll, I'll achieve some kind of normality. Or maybe this is, maybe the valley's normal, but I'll achieve something. And what we see often is that the battle can be just as fierce And will be just as fierce on the top of the mountain as it is in the valley. And in some ways, we're more prepared for it when we're in the valley because we're closer to Jesus when we need him. Lord, we need you now. I need your your comfort. I need your joy. I need your your presence in my life. And then we get on the valleys and we we become just like Israel. We become a little bit self-sufficient. Things, uh, time starts to slip. We're having such a good time maybe in life that time with the Lord slips and we're not spending that much time in the Word. We're not spending, and we, we start kind of evading community. We, we, we just feel everything's okay. I don't, really, I don't feel it's not a perceived need. And as we'll see in the life of David is a profound sense of need on the mountain and on the valley. But David has finally progressed out. Saul is now dead, and then we'll go now to Second Samuel chapter 1. We're going to see now how he gets the news, how he gets the news. So I'm going to tell you the brief story here. There was an Amalekite. Now remember, this last battle was between the Philistines and Saul, and Saul, Jonathan, and his sons all died. And they cut off their heads, and they hung their bodies on a wall of Beth Shan. I know it was pretty graphic, but that's the story, and the Bible never holds back. And we asked last week, did it have to be that way? Well, you know, I don't know the full sovereignty and plans of God, but no, I would say it didn't have to be that way. 
Saul had the presence of the Spirit, but continued to choose, continued to run from the presence of God. He wasn't all bad, as we'll see this morning, but he had just a fundamentally flawed perception and and understanding of God and and of himself. And so we see this picture, uh, David is now there, and remember, they didn't go into this battle, and he gets word, and an Amalekite was a foreign, you know, part of that marauding tribe that we looked at last week. He emerges and he runs into the camp and he says, look, I've got a story to tell you and you're not going to believe Saul is dead. And, and David, of course, inquired, how, how did that happen? And he said, well, he, he told me to and I ran him through with a sword because he was dying. Now, we, we don't really know, but we assume that that story is false and that what we get from the rest of the narrative is true, that no... Saul had fallen on his swords. Chances are this was, he was not part of the Philistine attack. He was just, he was a scavenger. Some of these Amalekites, they were like gypsies in a way. They would just go in and out and wherever they could find plunder. And he went and he had some proof that, he would, that Saul was in fact dead. And then David turns in verse 14 and David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now, again, we see throughout the entirety of this, we see an orderliness and an understanding of orderliness in the life of David. David understood, you don't touch the anointed of God. He understood, in fact, the law. You go back to Exodus chapter 22, you you do not stretch forth your hand against the Lord's anointed. And we actually see that in the book of Acts as well. You know, it's, uh, we get an unusual picture in the book of Acts. Uh, If you'll remember, Paul was before the council... And he spoke something as they were interrogating him, and he said something, and then they said, don't you realize who you're speaking with? And he immediately apologized for having raised tone and and made an accusation against a leader because he knew well Exodus chapter 22. So there, David, remember, at this point, there's no new covenant. There's no Jesus. There's no grace. There's no faith. There's no being led by the Spirit in an ultimate sense like that we get after Acts chapter 2. So at this particular point, what happens? He says, well, the law is very clear. You do not stretch your hand out against the Lord's anointed. So he took immediate issue. In fact, he, he said... He turned and he said, you need to strike him down. And they did. And they struck down this Amalekite for having actually killed Saul. But in fact, he didn't. But just his lie cost him his life. He was just an opportunist. That's all he was. He was just trying to make sure that he he might get a little bit of a reward. I mean, and and maybe brought into this new. And a lot of people knew that David's a rising star here. We need to make sure that connect our ship to him. You know, we want to do that. And yet it cost him his life. Now, what is it? And here's the question this morning. What was it about Amalek, the Amalekites? What was it about Amalek that was so profound? This goes way back into the early history of the exodus of the children of Israel. As they were coming out of Egypt, they began to confront this Amalek, this tribe, these Amalekites. And it was important. And I want you to go, if you have your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 17. And I'm going to read just verses 8 through 16. They were always set against the plans of God. Now, some of you say, well, is this just going to be a history lesson? No, it's not. This is much more than a history lesson. This gives us an understanding. Again, this is very 21st century stuff. This is for us today. If we can understand what Amalek represented. Are you with me? What did Amalek represent in God's economy? Very similarly was the Moabites. I remember years ago, I, I, I heard early on in my own discipleship and trying to learn 
Jack Hayford, some of you may know Jack Hayford, a Southern California pastor, well-known pastor in Southern California. He was teaching about Moab. And I'll remember, and I'll never forget. I, I mean, I thought, that's just Old Testament stuff. Let's get to the good stuff of the New Testament. Why would we want to go back into the Old Testament and dig all this old stuff up about this, you know, mean, vengeful, angry God of the Old Testament? I, I want to get to the loving, compassionate Jesus. And let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And yet, and it, I remember him talking about the tribe of Moab and what Moab ultimately represented. Moab always represented defeat and destruction and the enemy against God's plans. And so it was with the Amalekites as well. Listen to what's said here in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Now you got to realize this is during the time of Moses. So just for you can understand the chronology, we're talking about David roughly a thousand years before the time of Jesus preceded by Moses 500 years. So there's 500 years roughly separating Moses from the time of David. So David understands these stories and is well aware of Amalek and their ancient animosity towards the plans of God. And in this way, it was the plans of God were Israel. Why? Because God had told Abraham, who preceded Moses by 500 years and a 1,000 years predating David, I am going to bless the whole world, Abraham, through your seed. Ultimately, that was going to be Jesus. See, the reason Israel becomes such a central player in the biblical understanding is not because God loves Israel more than the, the Gentile nations. No, because he had a plan, a specific plan, and Israel was always called to mediate that plan. And ultimately, through that nation, and specifically the tribe of Judah, as the prophet Micah had seen, there's going to come a seed, and this seed is going to change the world. Now, that's, that's big time. Abraham is 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. We're 2,000 years removed from Jesus. 4,000 years ago, God was already, he already had you in his sights. I'm going to transform your life, and I'm going to start with a nation, and then I'm going to bless, through that nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. And Amalek was set against Israel. So, in a sense, Amalek was set against God blessing you right here in the 21st century. Amalek was set. Had God allowed the Amalekites to go forward as they had intended, there had an ancient animosity towards the nation of Israel, and eventually, potentially, the seed wouldn't have come. And if the seed didn't come, then you and I are just lost in our sins. If Jesus wasn't raised, we are of all men most to be pitied because we're sitting here talking about Jesus being raised out of the, from the dead. Can you imagine? I mean, that's, I was doing a memorial yesterday in L.A., and it's been a week. It's been a difficult week. I mean, this has been a challenging week. And I was doing a memorial in L.A., and I was like, look, there is nothing. We have no hope. And it was for Kathy Wynn. Some of you know her. It's for Kathy, part of our congregation as well. And I said, we have absolutely no hope if Jesus was, wasn't raised from the dead. Amalek was dead set against Jesus even coming to the earth. So Amalek is, in a sense, like our own flesh, like the enemy. Let's go on here. This is a fascinating story. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua told, did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up... 
that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out, utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. This is 500 years before the time of David. From under heaven, Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn. The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now you say, Well, what is this? How is this relevant to us? You have no idea what's packed into these eight verses. It's awesome. Now get the picture. Moses is up on the mountain. They are fighting in the valley, they are just wearing each other out. Amalek begins to prevail, and then Israel begins to prevail, and then Amalek begins to prevail, and then Israel begins to prevail. I said, well, Moses has this idea, I'm I'm going to raise my arms. And as I raise my arms, it's a clear indication. So imagine, here's up on a hill, here's Moses, already a prefiguring of Jesus, and we'll sit him on a stone, now, when you think of stone, immediately you begin to think of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Jesus was the rock when they were in the wilderness. And out of the rock, which was Christ, Paul goes on to say. It was a picture of Christ. This water came gushing forward to, 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 to clean everybody and to give them water to drink. It was awesome. And then here's Jesus on the cross. And, and all of a sudden, you see the rock picture. You see it in Isaiah 8. You see it in many other places. The rock would be the stumbling stone, the cornerstone that Israel would stumble over. Israel was going to, here's the rock. It's going to emerge in Israel's history. And yet, the prophet Isaiah sees well in advance, some 700 years in advance, that Israel itself is going to miss, miss the ultimate rock, which is Jesus. Jesus would use language like, build your house upon this rock, not on the sand, who am I? Peter, Jesus asked. Peter says, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the truth. And he says, Upon that truth, that rock, I'm going to build my entire church. See, Jesus is the rock. The church, in a sense, is built upon the rock, which was Christ. And yet, can you see Abraham here? Uh, excuse me, uh, Moses. Can you see Moses sitting on the rock with his arms outstretched and people holding up his hands? Does, do you get a picture on a hill of anybody else in history that would have their arms outstretched so that we could win the battle in the valley? Looks a little bit like Jesus hanging on the cross, doesn't it? Do you think that's by chance? Do you think that God didn't know that his own son, that he was going to send his son? At, let me tell you something. The whole concept of crucifixion didn't even begin to happen, really, maybe a little bit before the Romans, but really historically, and not until we understand the Romans, who wouldn't come into power until 63 B.C., some 63 years before the time of Jesus. But here's a prophet. Here's, here's Moses, the prophet, talking and seeing and describing this very moment in which the battle's won when we look at what? When we look at the crucified Jesus on the cross. And there's the rock supporting Moses. So Moses is both a type of Christ. The rock is a type of Christ. And then here's Jesus. And as they do, can you get this picture 
God's saying, it's, the, it's my own son who's going to give his life, who's going to allow you to defeat the Amalekites in your own life. And those Amalekites, I believe, in a sense, are typologically are your own flesh. We know that our flesh wages war against our spirit. It's clear. And once you understand that, you'll get that. Dan Cusick, in, uh, in his commentary on the enduring, uh, the enduring word, he, he says something very fascinating. I find it fascinating. He says, God commanded Saul to completely destroy the people of Amalek. That's what we looked at last week, 1 Samuel 15. But Saul failed to do this. And as it was, it was an Amalekite who came back and was there at his death. You know, it was, and, and depending on which version you, you, you believe, he was there, at least there, if not causative in terms of Saul's own death. You have to defeat your flesh. Do you think it's easy to defeat flesh? I mean, is that just easy for you? Do you always aspire to the right things? Do you realize that in this life your flesh will always wage war against your spirit? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. There's many of you who have had a born-again experience. In other words, the very presence of God lives on the inside of you. And now... That seed in you desires to do the right thing, desires to glorify God with your body, desires to take this valley or wherever you may go, whether it be wherever, and you on live stream, wherever you are now, and it desires, that you're, you, this, there's something in you that wants to make Jesus famous, that wants to, wants to love your wife as Christ loved the church, that wants to be a good pattern for your kids, that wants to be a, a great neighbor, a great friend who's always selfless and always other concerned and is willing to lay down their lives and sacrifice. You aspire to that, and yet we're stinking lazy. There's no other way to put it. Our flesh goes, no, pamper me, love me, you know, feed me. All constantly, it's a never-ending battle. So it was with Amalek. Though the Bible doesn't specifically say it, Amalek is often a picture of our fleshly nature. Let me take you to a few places in Scripture. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt? Remember what they did? Remember, they were at battle with God's plans for the nation of Israel. And as a result, his plans for you through Jesus. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers. Isn't that interesting? Stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he didn't fear God. See, Amalek always attacks you when you're weak and you're tired, you're exhausted. I've had that experience in my own life. Some of the times when I feel the weakest, maybe I'm traveling or there's something going on or maybe a week like this last week. What a lousy week this was. What a lousy week. Thinking about, talking about death. I mean, the tragedy of that. I mean, it's just been a rough week. I feel weak. And then, boy, getting caught in the traffic coming back from Burbank yesterday and that Pasadena. Don't drive through Pasadena on the 210. If you're, not, if you're live stream, you don't know what that is. Just trust me, it's bad. You know, we were, Laura was with me and we were in the, you know, two, you know, the HOV lane on the far left. And I felt like the whole way it was much slower than the other lanes. And it just, it was stop and go and stop and go. And Laura and I were talking about this morning. I said, how long did it take us to get back? She said, all day long. 
It took us to get back after this thing, you know? That's just the traffic. And then you get in and your flesh is just going, just lay down, just get something to eat, don't do anything. Then you're thinking about preparing for a sermon the next morning, and you're just, and there's this battle. Can you feel this battle? Brother Robert, I need an amen on that one. Yeah, thank you. So uh, is it just me that battles against the flesh? Come on now. No, it's just every day it pulls you. And it gets you when you're tired and you're weak. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Obviously, Amalek does not fear God. And then obviously, in the Exodus 17, what we just looked at, our fleshly nature, God commanded a permanent state of war against Amalek. Did you know that you are in a permanent from generation to generation, war against your own flesh. That's why it's so absurd to say, well, I like to do what I feel. This is my truth. This is how I feel. And people feel because they feel that way, this is the way I should go. Why are you doing that? Go and follow your passions. Follow your heart. Yeah, we're going to see when David followed his passions and the tragedy that ensued in his life. Don't be unaware that you are in an absolute battle. I see some of my friends here from the Palms. You know, if I had it my way, if my flesh had its way, I'd go play in the game seven days a week. There's a game. that I, I don't even belong to the Palms anymore, but there's a game out there, and I'd like to get there early, hit a few balls, have a little breakfast, you know, go out and play with the guys, you know, come in, have a little lunch, go back, you know, maybe, you know, I, I, if I had, and I'd go maybe get my wife and go out to a nice dinner, and then, and then, and then I'd just get up and do it all over again. I'd just do it day after day. That's what my flesh, like, this is where I need to be. This is just really comforting for me. Now, of course, we know all that's true because in, in between that, you've got to play golf, and golf's a miserable game, as we all know, <laughs> right? But there's somewhere deep down you go, no, this is right. This is, this is what my flesh wants. You know, it wants to be pampered. It wants to, and then, and then we get out of here and just, no, and then, and then God tells you to do something, or deep down you know, I've got to love my family. I'm raising a family. I've got three girls. They need me. They need, to, they need me there. They need, they, you know, I, I look at all this. And can you see the battle raging? This is what God is showing us through the Amalekites. You're going to be at war with them perpetually from generation to generation. Your flesh will never be subdued in this life. I don't care who you thought. Let me, let me tell you something. Some people move closer to the annihilation of flesh than others. And those are the people we look at and we go, wow, I can see Jesus in that person. It's so easy to see the presence of God in them. Why? Because they have... They have taken the flesh and they have, in a sense, crucified their flesh to a greater degree. Nobody's ever exempt from the battle, but I will tell you, there are men and women who I look at their lives and I go, all they ever do is get up thinking about others. All they ever do is think about glorifying Jesus. All that, Their whole life is consumed with Jesus and his plans and the kingdom. And yet you say, well, that, that they would just be, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You've heard that kind of a statement before. That's not true. They're of incredible value to the earth. People come to Christ knowing them. They come into contact with them, and they move towards their creator. They feel loved. They don't feel judged. These are people who've crucified the flesh. Like our fleshly nature, God promises to one day completely blot out the remembrance of Amalek. Did you know that there is a day? And, I was, and I'm telling you, when I was able to do a memorial yesterday, 
And I, and I knew Kathy well enough, and I was able to look into the eyes of all of her granddaughters. She had about five granddaughters that were there. And I, I remember those things. When, you know, you're speaking, and people are grieving, and Bob was grieving, and their friends and family, and tears are being shed. But to be able to look into their eye and say, let me tell you something, Grandma is in a better place. She will never again struggle with her flesh. She's going to have, she doesn't have it yet, but she will. When Jesus returns, she's going to have a resurrected body. It's going to be, it'll be immune to the sin response. That's what's going to make heaven, heaven. When I can look somebody in the eye and say with all confidence, because Jesus was raised, Romans 6, we too will be raised, those who know him. Let me tell you something, it's powerful. That is so powerful. And then you look around and the things we chase at, the, ch- the things we chase in this world and the things that we save for and all the things and all the glory of this world, you know. One day my life's going to be good when? One day my life's going to be good. If I can get a little bit more money, if I can get a little bit more healthy, if I can just get a little bit. And then we, we miss our lives waiting for this nirvana moment. And it's, let me tell you something, it never exists outside of Christ. It never exists. If it did, Michael Jackson would have been one of the happiest guys on the planet. James Dean would have been one of the happiest. Elvis Presley, Lauren, I watched this thing. I, for one of the channels, it was just this retrospective of Elvis Presley, and it was pretty like several hours long. And we watched it in parts, and we looked back, and it's like, man, he had everything. Nobody had ever had the kind of fame that Elvis had, ever. And he met, uh, not only that, he met uh, when TV was just coming around. So you merge this, this cult of personality and this rock star thing, and then you merge that with the uh, you know, television coming out of nowhere and, and his shaky leg, you know, and all that that made the women go crazy. A little dangerous, a little, and then you say, he should have had everything. Graceland, look where he lived. Look at who he's married to, Priscilla. She's so beautiful. He had all the money. He didn't know what to do with all the money. And he killed himself with drugs and overeating and indulgence and passion. It killed him. It wiped him out at a young age. You never hit that moment. But in Christ, you can be in the middle of a valley. You can be in the middle of of having a spouse that's going downhill quickly and you feel lonely and you feel afraid. Let me tell you something. God's in the middle of that. You can experience incredible joy. And if I hadn't seen that experientially and, and experienced also in my own life, observationally seen it and experienced it in my own life, I wouldn't believe it, but it's true. And, and this is what this is telling us. You'll always be at battle with Amalek. Like our fleshly nature, Joshua wins the battle against Amalek, Exodus 17, 13. There, you can win this battle. Let me tell you that again. You can win the battle over your flesh. It'll always be warring against you, but you can win a battle. The Bible says flee youthful lust. Flee them. If you struggle and you go into that particular place in life and you hang with those particular people, let me tell you something, you're going to struggle. But if you can emerge out of that and find new compatriots, new people that have say, I want to be like them, I want to be in that group, you can aspire to be that and it'll change everything. It'll change everything. Your whole life course will change. Like our fleshly nature, Amalek was once first but will one day be last. Numbers 24.20 is very clear. Numbers 24.20 if you have your Bible. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end will be destruction. 
your old fleshly sinful ways, there's coming a day in Christ when you step from this life to the next, you'll be released from your flesh. And then when Jesus comes back, he's going to give you, as 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear, he's going to give you a new body. Unlike a body that you have now, by the way. A very different kind of body. A heavenly body. But you'll still be able to touch and hug and feel and, and, and yet... You'll be able to be somewhere and be, you don't have to go through TSA and get checked out and have them take off your shoes and your belts and your watches and all that kind of thing. You won't have to do that. I don't know how this works in God's economy. I do not. But if, if we can imagine it through Star Trek and beam me up, Scotty, I'm telling you, there's coming a day when God can do that. It's not hard for him. That it's not hard for him if he can speak something out of nothing if he can speak trillions of galaxies out of nothing you think it's going to be hard for him to give you a body that's going to be immune to your flesh and its sin nature no way man no way no chance and finally like our fleshly nature Amalek allies itself with other enemies in battle against God's people and this is where we get back to Moab this Moab and Amalek Judges 3 verse 13 And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. Now, we got a lot of palm trees here. If you see yourself, our stuff is palm trees. You don't think there's still a battle raging between the forces that set themselves against God as a representative type here, Ammon and Amalek and Moab, all setting themselves up against the plans of God? If you are unaware that there is a spiritual plan of the enemy to wipe out this city, not in a literal way maybe, but in a spiritual way, then you're not thinking the way that the Bible helps us understand that things operate. You're not thinking biblically. If you don't realize that the second you hit that door and you walk out into this culture that there's not idolatry, that people don't raise, say, this is important. All idolatry is people are yelling, yelling, yelling. This is important. This is important. This is important. And we get the subtle, we get the subtle cues. Nobody has to tell us that. We know what we, we, this is important. This is important. This is important. You know, people can get so caught up and and just without even really thinking it through about what are you caught up in. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, I'm talking about a strip club and getting drunk every night. And all that. I'm just talking subtleties of idolatry that pull you into a place where you're like, man, this, is, this doesn't feel like I'm doing anything for the kingdom. It doesn't feel like I'm, I'm even, I don't even think about Jesus most of my day because I'm so involved in and then fill in the blank. It's taking precedence over the king of kings and the Lord of Lords, who will one day come back and every knee will bow. So if every knee's going to bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord, let's get on that page now. Not just some future day when Jesus comes back. Let's get on that page now. Tell people your life can be different. I've done memorials. They're brutal. I, I just don't, I don't, don't ask me. Do not ask me. Do not call me to do a memorial for a friend of yours who doesn't know Jesus. I just hate doing it. You will never hear me say, well, he's in a better place. Now they're looking down from heaven, laughing, having a good old time, having a, having a beer. No, they're not. I don't know them, and I, I never make judgment or pass judgment, but I, I want to do memorials for people who I know had a relationship with Jesus, and I can look their family straight in the eye and say, I know exactly where they are. And it's good. It's good. It's powerful. Romans 8 Verse 5, 
for those who are according to the flesh, for those who are according to Amalek, if you will, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Do you remember that guy runs out? He's a scavenger. That's what your flesh is. It's a scavenger. It runs around looking to, to get some kind of something anywhere it can get it. Maybe a cookie. It may be a beer. It may be a, it may be a, a little pornography. It may be, you know, it may just be whatever it is. Your flesh is like a scavenger, just like this Amalekite was when he came back. He was scavenging the battlefield. And he found some booty and just, and I feel good. This is going to really benefit me. That's what your flesh is always saying. But those who are according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit, it's life and peace. Now stop for a second. Do you believe that? If I set my mind on the Spirit, now what does that mean? If I set my mind on God's economy and I begin to retrain the way I think about everything and I begin to think in terms of biblical terms, and I'm not talking about boring rules that make everything dull and lifeless and and I'm telling you, the world works so hard to make us look like just horrific people. This little thing called Big Bang, that's a big thing among millennials. You know, they watch this Big Bang. It's, it's kind of, you, you get these series that was like MASH. Some of you, oh yeah, we love MASH, you know. Maybe you're a little bit predate that. I love Lucy, you know, these things that had long times to run. And then MASH, and then, well, now we don't have anything like that. And then Cheers comes along. Everybody loves Cheers. They watch every, they can watch the same episode five times. And then Seinfeld comes along. Well, it, now this is Big Bang thing, and now it's all about where we're scientific. And then, and then the main character Sheldon, he's always his thing is his mom is a tight kind of conservative Christian, and then he's 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 kind of thinking about marrying this girl. And they're all kind of they're all dysfunctional because they grew up in these legalistic, weird, way right fundamentalists. And and this girl, his potential wife, she's talking now about her mom used to lock her in the sin closet anytime she'd make a mistake. If she got her nose, her ears pierced, she, got, she would have gotten thrown in the sin closet. And then they make light of it, but those little subtle innuendos in culture. Like if you're one of the people who love this and you're just, a, you're just ancient, archaic, weird, and then all oh, they love the stories of like this home, home school group here just over here in where it was here in Southern California that locked their kids. They had all these kids and locked their kids in the house for all these years. And they have 20-something and they're not functional at all. They're, they're many of them illiterate and they were chained to a bed. You saw these stories? Homeschoolers. And my wife is like, oh, great. Can you imagine? See, they want to make this just a bunch of rules and right. Do you realize this is a life-giving template? If you walk in tandem with the creator of the universe, and it's not about just boring church where we come together and just the same thing ceremonially over and over and over and over and over. This is about a walk with the creator of the universe who will show you the miraculous, who will unpack for you his plans for your life. It is the most engaging, intoxicating, and I'm not, and I'm using that very intentionally. This is intoxicating. When they were first filled with the spirit, what were they accused of? Being intoxicated. This is intoxicating. If it, wasn't that, if it wasn't that way, after all these years, I have grown more passionate, more excited about the growth of the kingdom and the advancement of Jesus in people's lives than I was even five years ago, certainly ten years ago. And 20, 25 years ago, you wouldn't even have seen the same guy. 
It gets better every single day. Every drink I take, it gets better. It's not the case with other things in your life. Every drink gets worse. Every, every shot of meth, every, you know, whatever it is, whatever is your idol, whatever your flesh demands, let me tell you something, you'll need more of it and it'll have, you'll have less satisfaction in the process. This says it is life and peace. You set your mind on the things we're talking about, life and peace. Who doesn't want that? He said not only life, abundant life. I came to give you life beyond what you could ever think or imagine in this life not just some future reality where you sit down here and twiddle your thumbs and and pack your beanie weenies and wait for the apocalypse of some sort if you see no life right now invigorating stimulating exciting adrenaline filled life with a personal god but that takes relationship religion will not cut it you have to have a conversation with god and have it all the time Every day. Paul says, I pray without ceasing. In other words, I've got a call in to God and I am in communication with Him at all hours. Even when you dream and sleep, I have, my dreams have changed through the years. Early in our marriage, Laura had nightmares, horrific nightmares, horrific nightmares. Very rarely does she have those, if ever, anymore. Even your dreams will be taken over by a mind set on the spirit and not on the flesh. It always brings, you set your mind on the flesh, it'll bring fear, comparison. I'm not skinny enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, I don't have enough money enough, I, you know, whatever it is. It never will satisfy. It says this, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Do you realize when you just think about, you just listen to that voice of your flesh Got to get more, got to get more, got to do this, got to do that. Gotta, do you realize that that's actually in hostility to God? It's not just you giving in, it's actually hostile to God and his plans for the earth. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do that. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Galatians 5, similar thought. I say, walk by the Spirit. You, and then you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. How do you crucify the flesh? Walk by the Spirit. How do you walk by the Spirit? Well, that's why we come here. That's why we come here every Sunday. That's why you've got your rooted groups and your, your groups and your personal study and the women's Bible groups and the men. All that stuff just happens. Why? Because we come together at each... and I. It, I, I love this. I've been doing this for decades. I go to group after group after group. I'm at La Quinta Country Club, and then I'm over here, and I'm at Rancho, and then I'm there, and then I'm there. And then it, and I get to travel around the country and go to all these other groups. I think we've got closer to 250 groups around the country now uh, in these various places through links. And I get to meet with people all the time. And what are we talking about? How to be led by the Spirit. I can't do I, There's no way I could do this just once a week. There's no way. Because I want to set my mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the flesh. The flesh says its desire against the, against the Spirit. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. If you set your mind on the flesh, your spirit's like, oh, I want this. I want to be that person. I want this. But your mindset on the flesh, they're in constant, well, generation to generation battle. And that's what Amalek was. Does that make sense? 
Does this help? See, so when you read about Amalek in the Bible or you read about Moab, can I just tell you this? You're always reading, in a sense, apply that to your own life. Apply that to the forces that Satan wants to wipe you out. If he can't take your soul, if you're already born again, he can, he can make you ineffective and unfruitful and that so nobody else benefits from your life. Are you with me? See, Satan would love, at least if he can't take your soul anymore, because you've already entered into a contract with God, if you will, call the new covenant. Then what he would like to do is make you completely impotent in the spirit. And I'm sorry, that's just true. He would love to make you never be discipled, never really open your own Bible for yourself. That's one of the things I've done for two decades is go in and tell men, just read this. You can read this. No, I can't. I can't read it. It's just too complicated. You can read it. I'm telling you, you can read it. And sometimes it takes a while, one, two, three, four years, and then all of a sudden they can't keep them out of it. They can't stop reading it. They're just so enthralled by it. And then their life changes as a function of that. So I'm going to close this morning with this last thought. It goes back to David. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. Very interesting. David wrote a song. You know, he wrote a psalm. He wrote a lot of the psalms, as we know, David did. But he actually wrote a song about Saul and Jonathan. Fascinating. Why would you do that? Your enemies, the wicked witch is dead. The wicked witch is dead, right? I mean, you know, they're dancing around. They should be parading. You know, that's what the enemies did. Not David. The whole camp, because of his leadership, they wept and they mourned, not just about Jonathan, but about Saul as well. The very guy that was trying to kill him, you can see in David the seeds of great leadership. David is now 30. He's going to rule Israel for the next 40 years. He was in wandering and running from Saul for, we don't know exactly, between 10 and 15 years. He was a teenager Late teens or around 20, but probably a teenager when he killed Goliath. And then he had a long season of running and mistakes and preparation. And now he's about to walk in to what he'd been anointed to do some 10 to 15 years earlier. But before he does, he's going to write a song about his predecessor. And I think this is important and instructive. Let me read it for you. Verse 17. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah. It's called the Song of the Bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Your beauty, O Israel. See, Saul, even though he didn't live up to it, was still the anointed of God. In God's eyes, he was still beautiful because he was anointed to lead. Oh, how the mighty have fallen Please don't tell it to Gath. What does Gath mean? Well, that's, that was the enemy territory. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the daughters of the uncircumcised, uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, remember that's where Saul and Jonathan and the rest of the sons died. Let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not, what, return empty. Now, what he is doing is he's saying, look, they still had tremendous success on Israel's behalf. Saul did kill many of the enemies of God. Don't forget that. It reminds me a little bit about Paul when he writes his letter to the Hebrews in chapter 6. He said, God's not so unjust as to forget all the ministry he did to the saints. God remembers all that. 
Don't think he doesn't. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life. Saul and Jonathan. And in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Can you see that heart? He was trying to kill him his whole life. That's the heart of a leader. Not looking for others' downfall. Who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel? Israel, you owe Saul. You're indebted to Saul. Look at how you've lived your life. I will tell you as a sidebar, I am not a political guy. You know that. And I am, this will never be a bully pulpit in any way for any political thing. Some of you, some of you are hurt by that because you want me to make political statements. I'm not going to. I will tell you this. Whoever is in power, whatever side of the aisle, we are called to pray for them and support them. You don't have to support everything. Yeah, I will never support abortion. I will never, there are many things that I will never support. And I may vote against that. But once, once they're in there, we need to have some solidarity. And it now is just, the, I don't care who it is, right or left. The second somebody gets in, the whole other side spends the entire time. And it's divisive trying to wipe their administration out. You can see it. It's exhausting on both sides of the aisle. And I know some of you have very strong political convictions. And I, and I, I admire that. I, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't. But I'm just telling you, we have a call to understand that we at least support. And Romans 13 is clear about that. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. You love, your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Now, let me just sidebar note. Some people have said, oh, see, you know, David and Jonathan had some homosexual relation. Let me tell you something. No, they didn't. He's just saying there was such a deep, intense love. And I, I tell you, men in our culture, we, we die for that. We do everything we can to try to impress other men. Men try to impress men. Men go out in, in the culture, and they tend to get their identity, tend, not always, and this is not a sexist statement, but men have a tendency to go into culture and look for their identity. Women have a tendency, not across the board, but have a tendency to find their identity within their family. And I think God set that up. I mean, I'm thankful that Laura uh, has such a passion about our family and keeping it together and making, it, making the wheels roll and all that. And I look back and going, thank you, God, for Laura. I, my, my girls, if it was just me, I don't, I don't know how single parents do it. And if you're a single parent here, then I just, I, I just say, that is an incredible task that you have. And, but God will be there even in the midst of that to strengthen you. This is not a homosexual relationship. It was a relationship of intimacy between men. Not physical intimacy, but bonding. They loved one another, and they, did, they were on mission together. And I'm going to tell you something, men. Whether you know it or not, you want to be part of a missional community, a band of brothers who are doing the same thing for the same purposes, men that you can trust. You want that. You need that. And if you don't get that, then what you'll do is you'll work the rest of your life just trying to impress other men. And at some point, you won't be able to impress other men. You'll become a lonely, mean-spirited old man. Don't do that. I mean, I think of doctors. I think of many of you, but I think of Dr. Paul Cedar as one of our overseers. I think about what a gracious, caring, compassionate, loving man he is. On into his 80s, and he's just, he gets more like Jesus. And he's still walking in missional community. 
He says, well, maybe I'm not in a position of a lead guy now, and though he should be, he certainly is in our church. I may be a little bit more behind the scenes now as I get older, but boy, I, you talk about admiration. And it, I mean, I just love that. Men want that. You need that. Don't just get a bigger, faster, stronger car or more money in your bank account. Have relationship with other men for the purpose of advancing the kingdom. And I'm telling you something, you'll be satisfied in very deep places. This is, a, again, a golden nugget that the Bible gives us right here at the end. It's a beautiful thing. So in closing, what was it about David? He just absolutely refused to take revenge on Saul. Never did. Never did. In fact, killed a guy that even claimed that he killed Saul, who actually didn't even kill Saul. You know what David did? He protected his own soul from the poison of revenge. That's what David did. David was smart. I don't know what his emotions were towards Saul. I mean, he's trying to kill him for 10 years. He's on the run. Plus, I cannot imagine what David's emotions were towards him. Emotions. But I can tell you where his intentionality was, where his will was. I'll protect that man because he's the Lord's anointed until he is no longer the Lord's anointed. And in doing so, he protected his own soul from the poison of revenge. If you're here this morning, you got somebody, and you're still, and we talked about this the last two weeks. If you've still got this unforgiveness in you, you have to get rid of it. You may not be able to change your emotions overnight, but I'm telling you, you can do this. You can say, Father, I forgive that person. And you get up every day you think about him, Father, I forgive that person. And then pray for those who persecute you. Do anything you can, but don't let that poison settle in you. I don't care how bad the offense was. Don't let it happen. David didn't. He kept himself under God's blessings by not disobeying the law. We looked at that earlier. You know, Exodus 22, 28. Don't, do not take this into your own hands. You shall not curse God or curse a ruler of your people. Boy, we could use that in our day today. People just feel so, we should do that. Why would, why would you do that? I think we're poisoning our own country when we do that. Look, you may have violent disagreements with positions that rulers take. They did in the early church too. But you can still pray for them. You can still not curse them. And David was aware of that. And then finally, set a precedent for all of Israel. Did you know at the end of this, he says, this is going to be a song that goes down in perpetuity. I want you to remember this forever, the song of the bow. Why did he do that? Well, he gave honor where honor was due. What an honorable place. We've said from before we launched Church at the Red Door, we want this to be a culture of honor. How do we do that? Give honor where honor is due. We're going to do that next week. We're going to honor. And I know many of them will be gone, but we'll do it via live stream. We're going to honor all of our precious hospitality people. All of our, If you've volunteered, if you've, if you've given money, if you've done anything to, this, to the advancement of the cause of Church at the Red Door into this Coachella Valley and around the country, to the degree that you've done that, we want to honor you next week. You say, oh, I don't need to be honored. We, no, we need to honor you. I need to honor you. Noble men make noble plans, and by noble plans they stand. And many of you made very noble plans in advancing the cause of the kingdom. So what do we do with all this? Well, I will tell you, it's like we're trying to, we want a garden, you know? Gardens are all about seeds. I think, I've been thinking about that for weeks now. Seeds, garden, seed. Why did Jesus always use that language? Are you planting the right seeds that are going to grow into a garden of grace and mercy and wonder? Are you going to see this kind of a garden emerge in your life? Are you planting, as we'll see in weeks to come, David, as beautiful a life as he lived, 
seeds for destruction were already being planted in his garden. And I'll show you that very clearly in the next week. You say, boy, I don't want to hear that part of the story. Now, he's, now he finally emerged. He's on, the, he's on the mountaintop. He's ruling Israel. Everybody's going to bow to him. He'll have two years in Hebron, but he'll, uh, that he's not over all of Israel. But there's coming a time where he rules over everybody. He's got everything. He's just seen as an amazing leader. He's, and yet the seeds of destruction are already planted. What's being planted in your garden today? Are you, are you tending to your garden? I want you to think about it as we close with this worship song. Think about the garden that you're planting. Are you planting the seeds of destruction or are you planting the seeds of life? Are you planting spiritual seeds or are you planting seeds to the flesh? They can't be together. They'll be in hostility always with one another.